Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in the book of Esther. And every one of us have come to earth, and at some moment in our life, we need to be an Esther. It's a story about a brave woman willing to risk vulnerability and stand up for her people. Yeah. Now, the book of Esther is 10 chapters, and it's set historically in what's known as the Persian period, we think right around 486 to 465 B.C., Xerxes is the guy that's ruling Persia at the time, and he is going to be called Ahasuerus. When I teach a seminary, I call him Surprise Dinosaur, Ahasuerus. I know it's really Ahasuerus. <laughs> My jokes are really lame. So verse 1 of chapter 1 of Esther says, It came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this is the Ahasuerus which reigned from India even to Ethiopia over 107 and 20 provinces. In those days when this king sat on the throne in his kingdom, in the third year of his reign, he's going to have this feast, and the feast is going to be described. So with that, let's talk about just a brief outline of the 10 chapters, and then we'll kind of sink our anchor and look at some of the specifics. So the first three chapters of the book of Esther talk about the court of the Persians. There's this big drinking party that the king has, and the king is asking his wife, her name is Vashti, to do some things that she doesn't like. And so he's upset with her, and so he wants to get a new queen. And so the second chapter is where Xerxes or Ahasuerus seeks for a new queen, and Mordecai, who is an uncle to Esther, finds a way to put her forth into the court so that she can be an option to be the new queen. And Esther is not telling the king that she's Jewish. And the king chooses her. And so she marries the king. She's brought into his circle. And then in the third chapter, we're introduced to the villain. The villain of the book of Esther is this guy named Haman. And his goal is to basically wipe out the Jews. And so that's the introduction. So we have Esther, the court of the Persians. She gets married to the king, and then there's this plot by Haman to kill the Jewish people. Chapters 4 through 8 of Esther are what is called the reversal. Haman has the power, and he wants to kill the Jews. And so in the fourth chapter, Mordecai, who's Esther's uncle, works with Esther to try and find a way where they can save their people. Mordecai says to her, Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? And I really do think the main point of Esther is in the fourth chapter. In the fifth chapter, Esther gets audience with the king. And this is a huge risk she's taking to go in and see the king. Only certain people had audiences with king. And if you presume that, if you walked into the king without an invitation, it could have resulted in her being killed. Yes. And in the sixth chapter, Haman sees that Mordecai gets honors. And then in the seventh chapter, she reveals the plot that Haman has to take out the Jews. And in the eighth chapter, Haman's edict to kill the Jews is reversed. And so it is taken away. And Haman builds these gallows that are really tall, and he's going to hang from the gallows that he built to kill the Jews. 
and Mordecai and Esther are exalted. That's the reversal of chapter 8. Now, the ninth chapter, the Jews triumph over their enemies, so they get rest from their enemies. Now, they're doing some other things too, like they're slaying their foes. I'm just going to put that on the shelf for right now. But they have rest from their enemies, and then they establish a festival. That's called the Festival of Purim today. And then in the 10th chapter, it's really short, but the 10th chapter just basically talks about the accomplishments of the king and also Mordecai. And so that's the end. Now, just know that there are a lot of historical problems with the book of Esther. I mean, how historical is it? If you want to know more about it, go to the show notes and you can read some of the things that scholars have written on this. Perhaps this is not entirely historical, but that being said, I don't know. I wasn't there. I'm just going to teach and talk about what's in the book of Esther. Its beauty is its symbolism. You've got to see that Esther is a female deliverer, which is great to read in the scriptures. You can also see Esther as the church, the bride of Christ, that this is the church and the kingdoms of the world, or that you individually are Esther, that I am Esther facing the situation where there's a threat against my people. So regardless of its historical setting, you have to see it as symbolic. Absolutely. I will say this, I'm always going to refer to stuff that maybe isn't in Come Follow Me, just to kind of give it a little bit of context. I happen to find this book fascinating. The book's called The Book of Judith, and my take on The Book of Judith is it's a really good companion to the book of Esther. It's another female deliverer. It also has some historical complexities. But the reason why I like the book of Judith is because she's doing things very similar to Esther. She's taking the profane and she's flipping it and turning it into something that's sacred. So like I said, I really find the book of Judith valuable in my study of the book of Esther just to kind of see that the Jews really did struggle with this idea of how do I live in a world where my faith is threatened? And frankly, there were times when the Jews were persecuted beyond just people making fun of their faith, but they were actually persecuted and killed. And so we have this villain in the book of Esther, Haman, and his goal is to wipe out the Jews. Now, think about this historically, just in our time period, in the 20th century, we had a modern-day Haman that made it his goal to take out the Jews. So the book of Esther, this is a very applicable book in your life as you see history and as you see how people have related with the Jews. I think from the perspective of Latter-day Saints, we can read the book of Esther and see that faith is threatened on every side, and Esther is someone who's not afraid to stand up at the right time and say, hey, listen, what I have to say matters, and I have this faith. And she makes a difference. There was once a U.S. governor who issued an extermination order wanting to destroy the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and exterminate them from his state. So there are a lot of modern-day Hamans. There's individual Hamans. There's large, very influential Hamans. But see that as a symbol as well, is this is someone who wants to destroy my faith, and I'm going to stand up and save my faith. Yeah. And so... That's the big picture. Let's look at some of the specifics, and then we'll talk about you know how we can apply it. The beginning of it starts with this tension between the king and Vashti, the queen, and she's ousted. And so we get to the second chapter, which kind of reads like The Bachelor, where he says, hey, we've got to find a queen. And notice what we're looking for, according to the text. They're looking for somebody who is going to, quote, please the king. Verse 4 says this, 
Let the maiden which pleaseth the king be queen instead of Vashti. Now, that's probably not the way it played out. One scholar says, A beauty contest is hardly the way real queens of Persia were chosen. In fact, Persian queens had to be from the Persian nobility. So just know that there are some issues here with some of the history. But the author of Esther is trying to say that Esther is really beautiful. And it actually gives us her name in verse 7. Her name is Hadassah. And the author says, that is Esther. So Hadassah means myrtle tree. I think these names are really significant because I think Esther is going to be a representation of the wisdom tradition. Remember, the tree in the Holy of Holies represented, in one aspect, the divine feminine wisdom. We'll see this when we get to Proverbs 8. But also holiness. And also the the name Esther meaning star, what if Esther has to do with stars? We talked about this with back when we were in Abraham. Stars can represent spirits. Before the foundations of the earth were laid, the morning stars shouted together and they rejoiced when God laid forth his plan. Stars represent spirits or descendants of God. And so what if Esther is that representation of a divine spirit sent to do great things? And so anyway, Esther is going to be brought into the king's house. And it says in verse 9 that she pleased him, and so he marries her. But uh, he but, didn't know. Yeah, there's a charge here, right? Yeah, Mordecai had said, don't reveal your Jewish identity. He just felt like that was best, and so she didn't. Verse 10, Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. Yeah, So there's some interesting things here. Mordecai is this individual who's actually tied to the exile. If you look in verse 6, Esther 2.6 can be read a couple different ways, but Esther 2.6 could be read that Mordecai was with the Jews that had been carried away in captivity. Now, if that's the case, that would make him at least 115 years old. Now, uh, like I said, we're just we're just noting this that there's some historical issues, but what the author of Esther is trying to do is tie Mordecai with the old standard. The Jews that left in the exile, he's going to represent this orthodox position where we keep the faith even in the midst of all this opposition. And so Mordecai is going to come to Esther and say, "You can do great things, but don't tell the king that you're a Jew." Keep that on the down low. And the purpose is so that she can establish credibility. Look at the end of verse 15. It says, Esther obtained favor in the sight of all them that looked upon him. And then verse 17 says, The king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And so she gets credibility. Now, Let's talk about this, Bryce. There's a story in the Book of Mormon where we have an individual who wants to do great things, but also realizes, if I'm going to get this message across, I've got to establish credibility. And the phrase is actually used, he was caught with guile. Not deceivingly, but Ammon goes into the kingdom of Lamoni and says, look, I just want to live here. Now, is that the full truth? It's certainly true he did want to live there, but that wasn't his central motive. He wasn't randomly moving into the land. But he has a goal here, and he has to establish credibility in order to maintain that goal. And so he walks in and says, I just want to be your friend. I just want to serve you. I just want to live in this land. 
but he's just not giving all of the truth here so that a greater purpose can come about. And then the Book of Mormon says that he was caught with guile, meaning he did all of this on purpose. He had a motive, and he had a righteous motive. And so I think Esther's kind of doing that same thing, is I have to establish credibility if I'm going to save my people. And had she been very forthcoming, I don't know that she ever would have been chosen as the queen. Yeah, I, I think that's what's going on here. We talked about this earlier with Ketman or Takia, this idea that we are not obligated to tell our enemies everything, but we tell them enough. I mean, this is how the Lord works with us. He speaks to us according to our understanding, and he gives us sufficient for us to know, but we certainly don't have everything laid out. And, and Jesus was a Ketman master. There were times when he spoke, and he spoke in such a way as to reveal truth in packets, bits at a time. And so in this instance, Esther is not telling the king that she's fully Jewish. In fact, notice verse 20 of chapter 2. Esther had not yet showed her kindred nor her people, as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther did the commandment of Mordecai like as when she was brought up with him. And so that's what's going on. Now, there's a, there's another bit in here in the second chapter, just briefly. There was an assassination plot to kill the king, and Mordecai communicates it to Esther. That's in verse 22. And then she goes and she reveals it to the king. And so she's, once again, establishing more credibility by helping him to not only stay alive, but also show that she's trustworthy. And then in the third chapter, we're introduced to the villain. The villain of the book of Esther is this guy named Haman. And his goal is to basically wipe out the Jews. This is an interesting twist on scripture symbolism, because normally we have a faithful husband, which represents Christ, married to an unfaithful wife who represents an apostate church. Now we have a faithful wife married to an unfaithful husband, because this is that captivity period where God has symbolically left them. But she is a faithful wife. The church, to the degree that they choose to be righteous, are being faithful. And that's an interesting twist on the normal symbolism, because throughout the scriptures, we talk about the whore or the prostitute. And that is that a faithful husband has had his wife become unfaithful. Do you see that little twist here? So the situation is, you can be faithful even in an environment where symbolically your husband is unfaithful. She's certainly in a, in a very threatening environment, and that's really where the third chapter comes in. We have this guy named Haman, and verse 1 tells us that he is the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and his seat was above all the princes. Now, historically, just know that Agag was the king of the Amalekites, there's 613 laws of Torah, and one of the 613 laws is Exodus 17, 8 and 9, also 14 through 16, where the Lord swears out an edict of war against the Amalekites. In other words, the author of Esther 3 is literally tying Haman into the cosmic enemies of Israel, all the way back to Exodus 17. The author is kind of hearkening back to this idea. So Haman is the villain of the text, and his goal is to basically wipe out the Jews. And he comes and he proposes this, that they cast per. That's verse 7. And that's another way of saying lot, that they cast lots. And 
when they do, Haman says to the king, verse 8, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces, and their laws are diverse from all people, neither keep they the king's laws, therefore it is not for the king's prophet to suffer them. If it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed. So from these verses, the heart of Haman's argument is essentially this. The Jews don't acknowledge the sovereignty of the king. That's Esther 3.8. That's essentially his argument, and yet they do. He's saying, hey, these Jews are different. Let them be killed. Now, there's a theme in here that I I just want to make a note of this, and I can't really solve it. I'm just noticing this. There's a theme in a lot of the Old Testament books, especially when the Jews are in exile or they're in a position of subservience, where the kings are portrayed as not really knowing what's going on. In this instance, the king, Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, basically says, okay, Haman, I'll do that. And he's kind of portrayed as, yes. Ba-donkey bonk, ba-donkey bonk. Yeah, yeah, easily swayed. We see this also in Daniel, where the leader says, oh, yeah, I'm going to sign this thing that says, if you don't bow down to the image, that you're going to be killed. And I don't know, but partly one of the reasons why I see this we think that the book of Esther was probably written sometime between 400 and 300 BC. And the Persian Empire is, they're in charge until about 330 when the Greeks take over. And so if that's when this text was circulated, can you imagine if Esther would have portrayed the king as evil and knowing that he was this kind of vindictive, horrible person, it would definitely not bode well for the Jews. They don't want to have a book out there during this time period that's casting the king of the Persian Empire in a bad light because this is the empire that's running the show. In my opinion, we see some of this in the Gospel of John, where John really tries to take away the blame from Pilate. When the Jews bring Jesus to Pilate, and it's also in Matthew, but Pilate does everything he can to find a way for Jesus not to be crucified. It's almost like in the book of John, in the Gospel of John, what the author is trying to do is to convey the message to the Roman Empire, hey, we Christians are not your enemy. And I see the book of Esther kind of doing this. So the point I'm trying to make is Haman's cast is the enemy, not the king, even though the king signed the document. So it says in verse 10 of chapter 3, the king took his ring from off his hand and he gave it to Haman. He signs a document saying, we're going to kill the Jews. I mean, that's literally what it says. Verse 13 says, letters were sent by posts into all the king's provinces to destroy and to kill and to cause to perish all Jews, both young and old, little children and women in one day. And what day is that going to be? the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, to take the spoil of them for a prey. And a copy of the writing was published everywhere. That's the worst parade of horribles if you're a Jew. So the fourth chapter, Mordecai hears this. Remember, Mordecai is Esther's uncle, and he rends his clothes, and he puts on sackcloth and ashes, and he's mourning, and he's doing this in the gate. And Esther's maids, they see this. So a message is given to Esther, and to me, this is really the crux or the center of the whole book of Esther. So I'm just going to read this, and then we're going to talk about it here. So let's look at chapter 4, verse 13. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. 
For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? That statement is the gold of this week's Come Follow Me. Mordecai says to Esther, Who knoweth that this isn't the very reason you have come to earth at this time, been in this position, were chosen by the king. Who knoweth that God didn't put you in this very position for this very moment to do this very deed? Rise up, Esther. I truly believe that that statement can apply to each and every one of you, us collectively as a church, and each and every one of you. I like the fact that Mordecai acknowledges as powerful as he is going to become, He can't do this. And I suspect that there's some symbolism in that. As wonderful as the prophets, seers, and revelators are in our day, they cannot pull this off. They are not in the position that we collectively as a church are. Unless we, the Esthers of our day, unless we step forward and fulfill the responsibilities we've been given, our kingdom's going to fall, and there's no way we can save it. It's the Esthers of the day. I love that the Book of Mormon says that it was the stripling warriors that won the victory. And I think the day's going to come when we realize that the victory of the kingdom in our day is going to come from the stripling warriors, from the Esthers, from the average member of the church rising up and doing the very thing that they've been in a place to do. Mike and I feel compelled to do this podcast because we happen to be in a position where we can and we should. And whatever the circumstances of your life are, you are Esther, and Mordecai can't do it. You and I have to do it. And who knoweth but that you were come to the kingdom for that very thing, that very role. It may or may not be a calling in the church. Maybe it's something in the world. I truly believe that the founding fathers and mothers were put in a place to bring about this country. That was the very reason they were sent to this earth at that time in those circumstances. So it may or may not be a religious contribution. It may be simply you rising up to the occasion in which you find yourself and saying, this is the very reason I've come to earth. I'm not going to shrink from this responsibility. I'm going to rise up and do it. I think that phrase is the gold of this week, that all of us need to realize that that is true of each of us and all of us collectively. I know that it doesn't talk about foreordination, but when we think about her name meaning star, it is kind of fitting to think of that verse in Job 38, 7, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons and daughters of God shouted for joy. When Mordecai says to her, who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this, it to me clearly suggests that Esther came into the world to save God's covenant people. And just to make sure we're clear, The tension in chapter 4 has to do with the law that is associated with the king. So this is her response. When Mordecai sends her a letter that says, you've got to tell the king and reveal what Haman's up to, she responds to Mordecai in verse 11, quote, 
all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whoever, whether man or woman, shall come to the king into the inner court who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter, that he may live. But I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And so if I go and talk to the king, it could be my life. It could cost me everything. And then that really adds depth to verse 14, where Mordecai says, you know what, this is why you've been brought about. This is your time to rise up. And so she writes to him in verse 15 and 16, where she says, gather the Jews and let's have a fast. And then at the end of verse 16, she says, if I perish, I perish. And that really reminds me of something we're going to talk about in the future, and that's Daniel 3.17, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego tell the servants of the king, hey, we're not going to bow down to this image. And our God can save us. We know he can. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. So it's a powerful message. Now, there are some details in chapter 5 and 6 that they're good details. But for the sake of this podcast, we're not going to get into those, but we do outline those in the show notes. So if you want to follow the specifics of the details of chapter 5 and 6, read Esther, look at the show notes if that helps you. But just know, big picture, Esther is going to reveal the plot to the king that Haman wants to kill the Jews, and she reveals that she's a Jew. One important key aspect of of this reveal is in the seventh chapter at the banquet. And we read in chapter 7, verse 2, the king said to Esther on the second day of the banquet, what is thy petition? And she says in verse 3, if I have found favor in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed to be slain, and to perish. So she reveals that she's a Jew and that Haman is out to get them. And then she says, But if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I had held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. And the king answered and said to Esther, Who is he and where is he that durst presume in his heart to do so? And then she says, The adversary is Haman. And so Haman is revealed as the, the, the person that has made this plot. And so Haman is hanged in verse 10. Haman prepares this, and I think it's a little bit exaggerated, this massive gallows that's 50 cubits high. That's uh, chapter 7, verse 9. I mean, that's super, super high. This 50 cubit high gallows that he's prepared to kill the Jews, he's hanged on that instead. That's chapter 8, verse 7. And in the eighth chapter, Haman's edict to kill the Jews is reversed. It's an interesting twist on the Lord promising so many times, he that diggeth a pit for them shall fall into the same himself. Kind of a fulfillment, Haman built these gallows and then was hanged on them himself. Yeah. And then the eighth chapter of Esther talks about Mordecai being honored. Notice verse 2. The king's going to take off his ring, and he's going to give it to Mordecai. Verse 4, the king's going to hold out the scepter towards Esther. Look at the end of the eighth chapter. 
Verse 15, Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white with a great crown of gold and with a garment of fine linen and purple. As I read that, I start thinking about all kinds of symbolism with kingship, but also with what the high priest wore. This description of Mordecai could be tied into the idea of the high priest. In other words, Mordecai is given a house, Mordecai is given a name, he's given authority, and if you remember earlier in the book of Esther, he's wearing sackcloth and ashes at the gate, and he's crying out, and now he's dressed in royal apparel, and it's a reversal even in his clothing. A similar motif could be seen in the Joseph story, where Joseph's in prison, and then he gets a reversal, and Joseph became second in command. And also in chapter 8, it says that Esther receives a house. Look in chapter 8, verse 1. On that day did the king give the house of Haman, the Jew's enemy, unto Esther the queen. So Esther gets a house. Mordecai is exalted, and the edict is reversed. Now, the ninth chapter, the Jews triumph over their enemies. Chapter 9, verse 16 says, The other Jews that were in the king's provinces gathered themselves together and stood for their lives, and they had rest from their enemies. So they get rest from their enemies. Now, they're doing some other things too, like they're slaying their foes. I'm just going to put that on the shelf for right now. But they have rest from their enemies. Skip down to verse 18 of chapter 9. The Jews that were at Shushan assembled together on the 13th day and on the 14th. And on the 15th day of the same, they did rest, or they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. And so this idea of rest is repeated throughout the text. And it's tied into also Ruth chapter 1, verse 9, and Deuteronomy 12, verse 9, and actually 13 other times in the Old Testament. And in the Book of Mormon, three times it says, go no more out. And it's that idea of there will come a day where we go no more out, that we rest from our labors, our enemies, our afflictions, our trials, everything that pains us, we will rest from. That's a beautiful prophecy of God will wipe away all tears from off their eyes. Yeah. Or also Matthew 11, 28 and 29, "'Come, all ye that are heavy laden, and enter into my rest.'" Jacob 1, verse 7, we labored that we might enter into his rest. Also Hebrews 11, whosoever repenteth shall enter into rest. Also Alma 12, 34, over and over again throughout the scriptures is this message of doing the work of the Lord and entering into his rest. And so that's a theme of the book of Esther. Now, there's some difficult things going on in the ninth chapter with the enemies of the Jews, and this is tied into this notion in the Old Testament of collective punishment. We read this earlier in the book of Joshua with Achan, where he takes some of the treasures, and his whole family and all the people associated with him are destroyed, and that really is this idea of collective punishment, where the house of Haman is destroyed. And that's happening in Esther 9, verse 12. I don't know if I would focus on Esther 9, 12, and 13 that much if I was teaching this in a Come Follow Me lesson. But if someone asks that question, if you're teaching a class and someone's troubled, that's kind of how I would respond, is I would say, in the worldview of the Old Testament authors, collective punishment was going on a lot. And the authors of the Old Testament really struggle with this. And one of the early ideas, especially before the exile, was when bad things happen to the whole nation, it's because the king did wrong. But then later, that position is going to be reversed a little bit when we get to Ezekiel, where Ezekiel is going to talk about 
No, we're punished for our own sins and not necessarily collectively. And both of those ideas are taught in the Hebrew Bible. And from my perspective, this is just me reading history, I see it a little bit both. I see sometimes when a leader or a clan chief makes a bad decision and the whole clan is having a hard time with it. But I also see in my life where I'm punished for the specific sins that I have committed. And so really, it is a dance. It really is some of both going on. But in the book of Esther, Haman's sons are collectively punished. But the goal at the end is this idea of they enter into rest. The Jews have rest from their enemies, and that also notice their seed is preserved. That's Esther 9, verse 27. And really, Esther is also a book that is helping us see why they have the Feast of Purim, which is to celebrate the deliverance of the Jews in a time of trial. And that's what Esther 9, verse 28 is talking about. It says, These days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, that these days of Purim should not fail among the Jews, nor the memorial of them perish from their seed. Now, the 10th chapter talks about the accomplishments of the king and also Mordecai. And notice the very last verse of Esther 10 says, Mordecai the Jew was next unto the king and great among the Jews and accepted of the multitude of his brethren, seeking wealth of his people and the speaking peace to all his seed. And so that's the end. And as you ponder this week, there's a lot of history But long story short, it's a story about a brave woman willing to risk vulnerability and stand up for her people. Every one of us have come to earth, and at some moment in our life, we need to be an Esther. We need to have the courage to stand up. Now, when that moment comes and the whispering of the Spirit says, this is the moment to be the Esther, may you have that courage. May someday we meet her and we throw our arms around her because we have done what she did. The Lord needs modern-day Esthers. You have come to this earth at this time among these people with these talents for this reason. I'm so grateful that there are wonderful women like Esther as examples and motivators for those moments in my life where the Lord is saying, Bryce, this is the moment. This is the reason I sent you at this time With these circumstances, rise up and be Esther. And with that, we thank you for your time. We will see you next week when we talk about the book of Job. Make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.